everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. We are back in our regularly, I don't know, what would you call this? Just our regular set, aka my, um, oh, aka, <laughs> pun intended, um, aka my dining room table. Um, we got back from Washington State. We drove, if you guys don't know, I grew up in Washington State, <clears throat> excuse me, and much of my family is still there. And so we drove up uh, right before Valentine's Day. Drove all the way up there. It's like 17 hours or so and stayed for a month. It went by really quickly, uh, stayed for a month and then came back. And it's nice. It sounds so silly, but you get so used to things like having these headphones on. Sean accidentally forgot them here at the house when we went. And so we didn't have them for a month of podcasts. And I'm, I don't know. I just miss them. They make it so much easier for me to tell what you guys are hearing from what I'm saying versus me thinking, Oh, are they going to hear that that noise in the background or <clears throat> my mom's dog walking around and stuff like that? So anyway, um, it's good to be back. How are you doing? Just checking in. Think for a second. How are we doing? Uh, we so automatically always think like, I'm fine or it's okay. But if we really think about it, how are we doing? Because it's been, we're coming up honestly today as I record this, March 16th was the last day last year <clears throat> when I was in person filming the sleeping with friends that youtube original it was the last day i worked with other people like normally you know in a real way like previous to covid it was before we really knew what was going on and we were told we were going to go into like a two-week lockdown and i was like okay you know um but i remember being kind of scared and like oh should i go to that thing is it, am i putting myself at risk for no reason and they were like no we have we clorox wipe everything and when i was there no one was wearing masks because we didn't know we needed to do that yet but they did, um, they were like wiping everything and Clorox wiping and spraying Lysol and all sorts of stuff. So it's so weird to think back to that. I don't know. Anyway, that's what's on my mind. But let's get into your question. So today, normally I'm doing a new thing. If you guys don't know, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. I had something with milk in it earlier and it's driving me crazy. Um, if you guys don't know, I'm like a little bit lactose intolerant where I get that <clears throat> anytime I have milk and I try to avoid it, but damn it if I don't love cheese. Okay. So normally I do 10 questions and the last two questions lately, I have been just pulling them randomly from the comments because I know from a lot of you, you're like, oh, I didn't get my question in early enough. So it doesn't have enough time to get enough likes and then it never gets answered. I feel your pain. I understand the frustration. And so the last two questions I've been trying to do like random ones, but this week's unfortunately just has one random because when I got to question eight and I was like, okay, looks like uh, we're getting into the thirties for 30, like 30 number of likes, 34, 35, whatever. And we had, instead of one, they had 39, we had three. And so eight, nine, and 10 all had 39 likes. And then, then it would have gone down to less. And so that last, I did 11. So the 11th one is like a random one that I picked from just scrolling and stopping. <clears throat> Sorry, guys, I'll try not to kill you with my me clearing my throat. Without further ado, let's get into question number one. Question number one says, hi, Katie, I feel like I don't understand the point of our day. Not in a what's the meaning of life sort of way, but I struggle to not feel shame about being unproductive when I'm not at work or working out. If I only if I only did two things I deem productive, quote unquote productive, it doesn't feel like that's enough. Is watching TV till tomorrow comes a normal thing to do the majority of nights after work? It's a great question. Is it just my shame and depression make me feel bad for not being productive all day? What are we really supposed to be doing all day? Always finding something to better ourselves? What if I don't want to journal and meditate and do yoga for two hours every day? A part of me wants to not feel the shame, but then I feel like I'm wasting my life. I'm in school and work out most days and go to work full time. Wow, 
just wow, it's a lot. <clears throat> but it feels like there's so much free time that I'm not taking advantage of. Thank you so much for all that you do. And there was a comment, and I'll get into these comments after I answer this, because the comments have to do with like being on disability and what what that does to our ability to even be productive and how we have to kind of like reconfigure that or redefine it for ourselves. So I'll get into that secondary uh, to this first part of the question. So, okay. No, there is nothing wrong with watching TV till tomorrow comes after work or whatever. I do have a problem with people just watching TV all the time. And it's not because it's not, no, not even any hate on TV. Like I have a difficult time with my patients who want to stay in bed all day. Like once work ends on Friday, they don't leave like bed or their house or anything for the whole weekend until Monday comes and they're able to go to work. And that is usually an indicator to me <clears throat> that we're not doing well and that we need more support because we're barely surviving. It's what I we've talked about on my channel over the years is like high-functioning depression or high-functioning anxiety. It does not mean that there is no depression or anxiety. It just means that we're able to, with all the strength we can muster, get through the things that we have to get through, but anything additional is like, nope. <clears throat> we just can't. And so I just want to put that out there because if you are out there listening, you find yourself, you know, staying in bed or, or watching TV all day, every day, and it's really a struggle to get anything done, please reach out, please speak up. And if you find yourself immediately after work, like this person who wrote this question is doing a lot. You're at school, you're working out almost every day, and you're going to work full time. What your TV watching is telling me is that you're you're like maxed out and you just need to to recharge for the next day, which is completely and totally fine. Would it be beneficial maybe for you to try to journal some nights? Sure. But does that mean that you're unproductive or a lazy sack? Not at all. We all need time to just kind of zone out. I remember when I, Sean and I had just started dating maybe like a year or so. And I used to work at this uh, treatment center. I wasn't, I was at the eating disorder treatment center, but I was also working at this place in North Hollywood where it was like low or no cost therapy for people who needed it. And I worked there and after seeing like seven or eight patients in a row or going to like the eating disorder treatment center for a shift and then going to see some patients, I would just be like wiped. And I remember not even turning on the radio in my car and I would drive home because I just needed that brain time, like the quiet to be like, no one's trying to talk to me. I don't have to give anybody advice or listen intently. I can just zone out. And then I would go home and I'd watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Now you can judge me all you want, but that was the time that I needed to like, because my brain had been drained. I had a brain drain all day. And so I wanted to just zone out and watch something that I didn't have to think about, that I didn't have to focus on because who cares? I mean, no, no offense to keeping up the Kardashians. I, it's just, it's a reality show. It's not like I'm following some detective show and I'm like, wait, where'd they find that evidence? Do you know what I mean? I don't have to follow along. It's like, oh, they're fighting about this or, oh, they're going on this trip. Good for them. I'm just kind of like half watching. I also used to watch the Food Network a lot for that same reason. I'd be like, Guy Fieri is all over the world. This is cool. We're trying out this food. Awesome. And I could just like zone. And I, I say that because I think we all kind of need that zone time. And even more so now because of COVID-19, I know we're sick of hearing about it. I'm sick of being in the quarantine sitch and just things being all messed up. I'm tired of it, frankly. But I, for, it's taking all my strength just to not throw a tantrum like a child, right? And so even more so because I'm stressed all the time and frustrated and just irritable because my stress response has been fired and been fired, been firing and is on for almost an entire, like exactly an entire year starting tomorrow. Um, because of that, 
I need these breaks more often. And I find myself just wanting to like space out or zone out. And I don't even like social media anymore because it's like, I don't know, it just feels like too much effort. I don't know. Are you with me? Do you understand? You let me know in those comments because that's how that's where I'm at. And there's no shame in just wanting to watch TV before your day starts again. You just need some time to break. You need that zone out time, the the keeping up with the Kardashian time that I used to need every day. Um, And I still do it, you guys. It's not like it used to and now I don't. It's just a little bit different now because Sean doesn't like that show. (laughs) So I zone out with other things, right? Like he watches hockey and I play Candy Crush. No judgments. So let's get into this a little bit more because there's no shame in doing it. And I believe that it is your shame and depression making you feel bad for being produ- not being productive all day. And I think it's kind of this, it's negative self-talk. And I know that I mention this all the time and it drives, I'm sure it drives all of you crazy, but it's very, very important that we pay attention to what we're saying to ourselves. And so my goal for you would be, if you want homework, because I have a feeling you're one of those people that likes homework so that you feel productive. My goal would be for you to do your TV watching. Notice what comes up for you. Notice the... Uh, we've been sitting here for two hours. I can't believe we, or we stayed up so late watching that show. Or I want to want you to pay attention to those thoughts. <clears throat> and I want you to come up with, and you, you knew this was coming, come up with some more balanced thoughts, not positive, just those good old bridge statements. Like it is possible, that, you know, that I do need a break. Or Katie, you could even put the blame on me. Be like, Katie did say that we all need breaks sometimes. You know, I'm not a robot. I can't work 24 seven. For all of my waking hours, I can't be being quote unquote productive. Like then where's the fun in that, right? Let's come up with some kind of more balanced arguing against that thought process thoughts. And let me know what comes out of that. Let me know if that helps because I believe that that is the thought spiral we're getting caught in is like, oh, I should be doing something. You know, I always hated at the beginning of quarantine and I think I spoke pretty publicly about this, how people were like, after a month in when we thought it was going to be over. We were so naive. Um, But people would say things like, if you haven't written a book or learned that new language or finally cleaned that garage out or whatever the fuck, you know, then you you have no excuse. And I was like, wow, way to slap on the guilt, shame and embarrassment. Awesome. I was already feeling bad, but now I feel even worse. Thanks, internet. Um, And so when you see things like that, first of all, I'd encourage you to unfollow those people or at least mute them. And then we need to tell ourselves something nice about it and talk against that thought. Like, so if I read that today, I'd be like, that's not true because I've been in a traumatic situation for a year and I've been super stressed out and I'm just happy I survived. Right? Fuck that. Fuck that tweet and that meme. It's like so judgmental. I hate judgmental and like productivity. Uh, I, I don't like when we glamorize productivity. And so I even have a video about that. I think it's like, we have to stop doing this or something. I think that's what it's called. If I can find it, I'll link it in the description. Okay. Now the comments on this. So someone said, I feel the same way, but I only work part-time and have disability support for the time that I can't work. I'm 36 and I feel like I'm too young to be on disability. There is no too young, unfortunately. You know, if we need help, we need help. Although I rationally know that's not true. Okay, good. How normal is it to be on disability because of mental illness? Very normal. And how can I accept that I'm not as productive as I want? And is there even a chance that I'll be more productive in the future when I've already been working part-time for six years? Okay, so that's one, and there's a couple more comments on this. So first of all, I can't tell you how many patients I've either helped get on disability or they already were on disability when they came to see me. I've even had um, young as 18, honestly, even... um, yeah, I guess I'd probably be the youngest, although I did have a 16-year-old. We were trying to figure out ways around school requirements so that 
she could still graduate. It would just take her a little bit longer and she could do the courses in a different way. It's almost like IEPs, but it was with her. Her mom and I had discussed how we would need this to extend into adulthood as she got older if things didn't improve for her because her depression was so debilitating um, and eating disorder and all sorts of things going on. But anyways, that we would have to figure out a way to start that process when she did turn 18. So their being on disability for mental illness is very very common. All it takes, honestly, if you guys want to do some research, you can just get online and get into NAMI, um, N-A-M-I, the National Association of Mental Illness. And they have statistics in there. You can actually even just Google what what cost, I think it's like, what's the cost of mental illness in the US or any country or in the world? And they'll show you the billions of dollars that are lost every year, meaning the amount of work that we're not able to do. And I want to say it's like $41 billion or something every year that's lost to mental illness and the lack of care and treatment. And it's part of the reason why, you know, we work so hard to break through the stigma, educate people, empower people and make care available at a more affordable level for everyone. So anyways, long story short, I want you to know that disability is very common and across the world. And it, it affects uh, our ability to make money each and every year. So, and that's what that money lost is. It's not money lost to the government. Well, I guess it, in taxes, but it's more money lost for us, for us, our ability to make a living and take that money in. And so I just want, I want you to know how common it is. And then the accepting that you're not as productive as you want. I think I would encourage any of you out there, if you're struggling with disability issues and like not able to, even anybody not able to work as much as you think you, you know, quote unquote should, because you're shooting all over yourself. Someone said that in the comments and I was like, yes, you know, we should be doing X, Y, or Z. Who says who, right? Paying attention to that, like I said earlier, and talking back in a more balanced way is really key, but also taking the time to redefine what productive means, what does it mean to be, because I've heard from a few of my patients over the years, they're like, I feel like I'm just not a productive member of society. And that's a lot of judgment and shame. And that's really a horrible place to put ourselves in. And so how can we redefine productive in a way that fits for us? For, for a lot of my patients, and a lot of you out there listening, productive means I got up, I took a shower and I fed myself. You know, it could be like our very basic needs. That might even be too much for some of you, but I'm just, I'm throwing out an example. You know, we don't have to be going to work, school, and, you know, working on ourselves and learning a new language and cleaning our apartment and learning how to make sourdough bread or whatever. We can, the goal can be to not miss taking our medication this week, you know, if it's a struggle for us to take those things on time or to shower three times this week or to get the groceries that we need or order the food that needs to be ordered for our family or for ourselves. Like those are things that make us productive enough. That's, that's surviving, right? I know that it can feel like we're not thriving, but again, we're going to have to redefine what that looks like and what that means for us within our ability to do it. Because I'll be honest, even as someone who maybe from the outside looks very productive, I have friends that put me to shame. Like my, uh, my good friend, Rebecca works super hard and they release like, is it eight or nine videos a week? Eight or nine a week. You guys, you hear me? This is crazy. And hanging out with her, I'm always reminded of my own limitations. Now, does that mean that I'm not productive and she is productive and I'm a lazy sack of shit and she's amazing? I mean, she is amazing, but it doesn't mean that. It just means that we have different abilities and hers is the ability to put those videos out with the assistance from her team. And I just don't have those abilities. So 
I know that it's hard. I know that we want to judge ourselves. We want to talk shit to ourselves and we get so caught up in that negative thought cycle, but take a minute to slow it down. Consider what productive can mean to you. How do you want to define it? How can we be compassionate when we have days where we're not able to do anything? And how can we argue back when our brain wants to pull us away into those negative thought spirals about us being so goddamn lazy, which we are not? Okay, now on in within those comments, then it was like, okay, how normal is it to be did that one? How normal is it to be on disability? How to accept that I'm not as productive? We talked about that. And is there a chance that I'll be more productive in the future when I've already been working part-time for six years? There's always an opportunity. But I again, what do you mean by productive? How do we define that? Do you want to work full-time? Is that the goal? Is that a reasonable goal for you? Like consider these things, talk them out, be honest with yourself. Don't be judgmental, just be curious. Let's be a detective about it and figure out what our goal is. Is our goal to work part-time and you know, work through one therapeutic workbook every two months, or I don't know, I'm just making things up, you guys. Let's see what productive looks like for us. Let's define it. We can set some goals with our therapist around those, that new definition, and change that into us feeling very productive. Do you know what I mean? Okay. And then someone else said, I'm also disabled and would really like to add to the question, how to not feel like a failure. Or, and then someone else said like, which is more my problem, how to not feel like everyone else sees you as a failure. And, um, or sorry, that was part of that same comment, but a comment after that said, I can't even uh, make a list of things, let alone do them. It was like, you know, the idea that I could make a list of seven things, because I've talked about that in the past, how our to-do list should never be longer than seven. They're like, I can't even do that, you know, even the to charge my phone or laptop enough to make sure that they have the battery to even get into them to do anything is already too much to ask of me. And again, I want to go back to that redefining what disability means for you. And then the failure component is... It's, it's that self-talk. And I know it feels like it needs to be specific to each individual issue here, but it's all part of the same problem, which is I'm not able to do the things that I, for some reason, think I should, you know, I'm shooting on it, should be able to do for whatever reason. If I'm in the, dis if I'm on disability, if I'm in that category, there's continued judgment around that then regardless of where it comes from, I feel like something's wrong with me that I can't be as productive as I think I should be. And then I think shitty things about myself. And I just get caught in this cycle where I don't, don't do what I think I should. I feel like I'm a loser because I am not doing it. And then I don't do anything because I'm tired because that's emotionally exhausting to be talking shit to myself all day. And then I start over and we go round and round all over again. And that is uh, exhausting. And so hopefully some of that self-talk stuff helps you um, helps reframe it at least a little bit more balanced. And then let's all, I think we could all benefit from redefining what does productive mean and stop glamorizing, overworking and burning ourselves out. Because back to the original question, you can totally sit in front of the TV at night and just zone out for a bit. We all need a break. We are not robots. Okay. Let's move on to question number two, because I've talked about question number one for a very, very long time. And I apologize. Okay. 
Question number two says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. I wanted to ask if your clients are aware of your online presence. I'm mainly thinking of clients with attachment issues. For me personally, I am super attached to my therapist, but she does not have social media, or at least I don't think she does. But I started to imagine if you were my therapist, I'd be super excited to watch your videos and see a side to you that I don't see in therapy. I hope this makes sense and doesn't sound too strange. And don't worry, I'm working on my attachment issues in therapy. Just wanted to know if this was ever a concern for you and how you would deal with a client watching all your videos in between sessions to learn more about you rather than to educate themselves. Hope you're well and you had a safe journey back to LA. Love from Ireland. We did. Thank you. This is a great question. And I've talked about it briefly before and someone left a comment below this where they mentioned that I have. Now, most of my clients are aware. There are some that are not, okay? Um, and the ones that are not, I honestly just think they don't watch YouTube. Like they're not even necessarily older. Like one of my patients is in her 40s and she just, I don't even think she... She's a very, her profession is very, keeps her very busy. And especially during COVID and it's just not, it's not an issue. So some of people do not. I've had patients in the past um, that like, I was already doing YouTube, but they just didn't know. And it was early days. And then they left, you know, like, okay, you're doing well, we'll take a break. And then they've called to reschedule and like get back in. And then they're like, oh my God, you're online. Cause they had to like look up they thought they could look up my office and phone number and stuff like that again, you know? And so anyway, that has happened. But most of all, like most of the time, my patients don't either, number one, like in a few cases, I've referenced, I've pushed them out to a video, like, hey, watch this video and see if this helps you better understand your new diagnosis, let's say, or something that we're working on. And it can be a helpful tool that I've used in my practice. But a lot of my patients say that they just don't even, they're not interested. Like some of them even used to watch it, watch my channel, then were seeing me and then decided they didn't want to watch it anymore because they got me in person. And they're like, I don't really need that in my head. Like I'd rather just see you in session. And so they don't really care. And they would prefer to just only see me the, in the professional way. Um, however, I guess I just don't have any patients dealing with attachment issues currently. But in the past, I have had patients who have done that and we've talked about it, like having a tough time with with dealing. Their issue wasn't really knowing too much about me. It was more about the fact that other people could watch and see and they didn't like that. They've also had issues with me seeing other patients. And that was just something that we kind of processed through in session um, to try to understand where it's coming from. And it was kind of more of that BPD attachment, you know, borderline personality disorder is what I mean by BPD and that kind of, you're going to abandon me feeling and worry and, you know, processing that through and trying to help understand it and trying to teach them how to self-soothe along the way, because that's really what it is. We feel so dysregulated by the concern for someone abandoning us that we act impulsive and lash out and, you know, it can be really difficult to control. So that's really how I've managed it. But again, like some of my patients don't know and the ones that do right now don't care. Um, and then I have had a couple, although I don't think, I think the the one I was referencing the most recently, I referred them to a video so that they could learn more about their new diagnosis. They're now um, in treatment. And so I don't, I don't even know, you know, I'm not seeing them currently. So so there's that. But yeah, that, that's kind of how I manage it. It's not something that I openly tell patients unless, you know, again, like I want to refer them to a video. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's been it's been okay. I guess it's just just depends on the person and how they want to deal with it. Okay, moving on to question number three. Hi, Katie. I was wondering why my suicidal thoughts often get worse when I am doing well instead of when I get worse. 
It's a great question. I struggle with anxiety and depression, if that matters. Yesterday, I had a wonderful day, but my suicidal thoughts were so much worse than on the days when I'm overwhelmed and stressed. Is this normal? And then someone, there are a bunch of comments on this. And then the one that I'll read right now, but then we'll get into another question after that, um, says, or... As in my case, on bad days, I would have emotional swings, anger, sadness all around. And on my wonderful days, I'd actually make plans to attempt suicide. Now, and then there's one more after this, but I'll get into that later because it's a little bit different. The interesting thing about suicidal thoughts, and okay, let's start with this. Have you guys ever seen a commercial for an antidepressant? Now, if you're in the States, we have a shit ton of commercials for medications. Why that is, I don't know. Why you should be selling me a medication? I don't know. Maybe it's because doctors don't spend that much time with us and we can advocate for ourselves. That's possible. But either way, it feels kind of weird, right? Now, whenever they advertise for antidepressants, there's always these the warnings that they read off or rattle off really quickly. And one of them is that taking an antidepressant can increase thoughts and risk of suicide. It's a black box warning. And the reason for this is when we are feeling really down and out, okay, I'm super depressed. I can't even take care of my basic needs, right? I'm like, I'm down and out, the worst I've ever felt. I think you all would agree that that place is not very motivated. So the idea behind antidepressants, when you're given an antidepressant, it increases your energy and your motivation more quickly then it takes care of the depressive thoughts. It can take three to four, sometimes six weeks for the depressive thoughts to resolve, but we have more energy. And that is a very dangerous place to be in when we feel like shit, but we have energy. Because in the past, our depressive thoughts, or our, our, I guess the weight of our depression has kept us from making any plans or having the energy to you know, go through with it. However, when the the energy is given to us, but we still feel like shit, right? When you have better days, you have more energy and you'll put the energy behind actually making a plan or getting the means or whatever, or even just thinking about it and putting it together in a more uh, formal way. And so that's why, and yes, it's very normal, but sorry, I have a floof. There it is. I had a fuzz from my sweater on my lip. Um, but I would talk, please tell your therapist this is happening, first of all, because it's, again, whenever one of my patients is starting a new antidepressant, not only does their psychiatrist call them the day after they've started it and check in after a week, and you know what I mean? And then I'm te- checking in with them just to make sure and making them aware that this can happen and why. Um, but we just need a little extra support until we can manage and then those depressive symptoms kind of go away a little bit more because energy is the only thing keeping us safe sometimes when we're in those deep, deep depressive periods. And um, so that's kind of why that's happening. And that's why that comment on this was so on point because they said, or as in my case, on bad days, I would have emotional swings, anger, sadness all around. On my wonderful days, I'd actually make plans, right? That's what's happening. And, and, and it is very, very common, hence the need for that black box warning on all of those medications. Now, there was another comment on this where they said, I don't know if this comment or question is related, but what ex- does it exactly mean to be suicidal? Is it to have suicidal ideation only or to have a plan and suicidal ideation? Could you briefly explain, please? I've researched it on the internet, but it's not totally clear to me. So to be suicidal honestly means you have any thoughts of hurting yourself or taking your own life. And um, I know people say like, well, hurting myself, like I struggle with self-injury urges, but I don't have any you know, desire to, to take my life. It's, it's self-injury. Well, that's kind of different. I'm talking about hurting yourself in a way to take your own life. I'm not just talking about hurting yourself. This is like an action that we're taking to hope that it ends our life. 
okay? And so that's really what it means to be suicidal. If we have any thoughts about that at all, we, we are suicidal. Now, therapists will use terms like actively suicidal, and I've even used that, or suicidal ideation. Those are all different. I like to think of these things kind of on a spectrum, like suicidal ideation is when the thoughts kind of come in, but they go away and they kind of float. And there, there's nothing really to them that where we feel like, oh, I'm going to take this, this or that action, right? So they kind of come and go, no pressure. That's kind of just ideation, now, if it gets more serious and we have, the, we have a plan or we're putting our plan together, we have the means and all that stuff, then that's active, right? It's, it's an active thing that's happening and that we should worry about and we should have a safety plan in place and we should have some crisis uh, stuff together so that we, we don't har- harm ourselves. Um, and so that's really what it means. To be suicidal is like we have thoughts about it in general of taking our own life. Now, again, goes from ideation to active, depends on how serious the threat is. And that's why there's those different terms. But I hope that just kind of clears it up a little bit because again, it's like a spectrum. And then you can kind of tell like based on what the terms are, how serious it is. And and I don't even want to say serious, like some aren't as serious. I just want to say how intensely we need to manage the crisis so that it doesn't end up, we don't end up hurting ourselves, Okay. Now let's move on to question number four. Struggling with physical intimacy. I have never been a very physical person. I struggle with the negative automatic thought that all men really want is sex and everything else is just a means to an end. I am now in a great relationship with someone but struggling with physical intimacy. I've talked to him about it and he's been very respectful of my boundaries but he does want more physical intimacy and I do too but I'm still so hesitant. How does one get over this fear of physical intimacy? Thank you, Katie. You're such a light for all of us. Oh, of course. And then also in the comments below, the same person who asked this question said, I haven't had a major trauma because that's where my brain goes to immediately. I think my experience with religion and church growing up, plus how the media portrays men a lot of times, plus some previous experiences with guys who were purely interested in me for physical and not emotional. All that combined, I feel like has led me to this point. So Often when we struggle with physical intimacy, I will go to trauma. So if you're out there and you have any sexual or even physical trauma in your past, any abuse, getting intimate and being close with someone can make us feel very vulnerable. And if we've been hurt before, why would we want to do that? Do you know what I mean? That that doesn't feel safe. And so in therapy, we can work to process what happened to us. And that can be through a lot of different means, whether that's through talk therapy and putting our trauma into a story, like a narrative form, could be EMDR, could be any kind of trauma-informed therapy like somatic experiencing or uh, schema therapy. There's a lot of different therapies out there that can help us work through a trauma. Um, And that will kind of assuage the urge or the reluctance, I guess, to be physically intimate with anybody. So there's that kind of component to it. And then there's also the exposure component where we should do some, uh, get some resources and some tools to calm our system down and then imagine ourselves becoming physically intimate with people or getting close, letting someone hug us, put their arm around us, hold our hand, all of the things, kiss us on the cheek. It depends on how, what, what we normally allow. And then we kind of have to build up that hierarchy of fear. That's, if you go back to my video about exposure therapy, it goes from something that's not stressful or overwhelming at all, all the way up to like, let's say, you know, having sex with someone we we care about, that would be like, red alert, red alert, like throw us into dissociation or panic attack. And we kind of want to work our way slowly up in a safe manner where we can use the relaxation tools to calm ourselves down. Um, So that is, that's how we kind of get over it. But I did, someone did mention in the comments, and I'm not completely familiar with this term. So 
I have not done any research, but I wanted to make you all aware of it and know that it is something that I am happy to look into if you if you so desire. But people talked about what one person actually left a comment saying that there is religion trauma because of kind of the manipulation, or you could even argue it's like mind control within churches and the guilt and shame that's that's slapped on when we don't do things that are, you know, deemed appropriate. Like, oh, you curse or you drink alcohol or you had sex outside of marriage or you allowed a guy or a girl to have make sexual advances on you, even though you're in a relationship, it's not acceptable because you're not married, you know, and in the eyes of God, that's a sin. There's a lot of stuff like that within religion. And I'm not judging anybody for being religious. I'm just saying that for some people, that shame and guilt can never be overcome. And it can be really difficult for us to engage healthfully in sexually intimate relationships. I'll even share a story from someone I grew up with. Um, I'll leave enough stuff out that you won't know who she is, obviously. But she grew up super, super religious. Her family, very incredibly active in church. Her dad was a, a pastor and her mom was like, you know, led the youth group and stuff. And she saved herself for marriage, got married to another guy that I knew from church. And they were married. They actually divorced now, but they were married for three years and she still has never had sex. And she would tell me that she would think that she should do it. And on their wedding night, they tried for the first time. She was so terrified and felt so dirty about it and couldn't even bring herself with like breakdown in tears. And it ended up being the unraveling of their marriage because her husband, you know, he wanted children and sexual intimacy with his wife. And it wasn't something that she was able to give. And uh, hopefully, because I don't know, I haven't followed up with her on this because we're not, you know, that close. But hopefully she's in therapy to try to process that through. But I think that that has a lot to do with what's happening here, potentially, because she says my experience with the religion and church growing up. You know, I think that the guilt and shame and like, quote unquote, dirtiness associated with sexual intimacy or physical intimacy of any kind can really skew the way we view it and make it very difficult for us to engage in without feeling anxious and overwhelmed and like potentially unraveling, like dissociating, having a panic attack, wanting to cry, wanting to run away or scream. That That's like a hypervigil, that's a PTSD response, really. That's like um, in the diagnosis of PTSD, one of those components is like avoidance of things that remind us of the trauma. Now, if we've been told, if we we're traumatized through our religion, if we're told that this is like dirty, bad, shameful, then the the act of it would be so overwhelming and so anxiety provoking that we would avoid it at all costs. And so anyway, someone had mentioned that and I don't know enough about like religion, church uh, trauma or uh, I forget the word they actually use, but I, I don't know enough about that, but I, I don't necessarily, I, I mean, there is some truth to it. Like I said, I have experience with one of my friends that they went through that. And that was really, really difficult for her, especially her for a relationship. Um, but yeah, so those, the best way to get over it, I believe is through exposure therapy with a therapist who is, I mean, there are sex therapists. I did a video years ago with a sexologist, which is different from a sex therapist. And I even have a video about that with Dr. Lindsay Doe. I love her. Her channel is wonderful. Her channel is called Sexology. And the little opening, she goes, <clears throat> it's such a cute little opening. I love Lindsay. She's wonderful. But anyways, there's that channel. And I think there's also a sex therapist that's on YouTube or at least on Patreon, because I know you can't monetize any of those videos on YouTube, womp, 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 um, even though it's education-based. But I do think that that finding someone who is either trauma-informed or is a sex therapist could really, really help you kind of figure out what's coming 
up for you and where the root of this is and how we can kind of unprogram what happened to you through society and media and church, because we are, we're so persuaded and so influenced by things in our life. But again, I think that the exposure therapy and stuff will be your best bet. Okay. Question number five says, how do therapists handle clients who aren't honest? Oh my God. So many of my patients aren't honest either because they are too sick to see reality or not ready to face certain things. That's usually the reason. If a family member of a client like this called with information about their mental health that was concerning or would change the diagnosis of someone, what would you do? Let's say someone is seeing you, this is an example. Let's say someone is seeing you for anxiety. What if they tell you they have panic attacks sometimes and struggle with sleep? Then their mom calls you and says that they can't get out of bed and they struggle with relationships and impulsive behaviors and addiction, as well as intense and fierce mood swings. What would you do? Now, the interesting thing is that if a patient is over 18, or 18 and over, I guess, not over 18, if they're 18 and over, they're legally an adult. And I don't allow parents to call, like, I mean, she could call and leave a message, but I would never tell her I got it and I would delete it. And that's just what it is. And then I'd tell my patient what happened. So that's how I would deal with it. Because one of the main rules of being a therapist is you're not the secret keeper. I'm not the go-between. Your, your mother should be communicating with you and you should be communicating with me. And then also this is your therapy. Sure, it might be more helpful information, but unless you as the patient invite your mom into session to share that information or to share her view, which I have a lot of patients who've done that who are over 18, um, especially if they still live at home, will have their parent or even sisters, you know, dads, whoever come in for one session every so often, every couple of months. And one of the things that I regularly do is I'll tell them, you know, based what my patient is okay with me sharing, but usually it's like what we're working on and what's been uh, working and what hasn't been working and how they can help. That's kind of how I focus those sessions. And that will be the point where the mom, I've had this happen over and over, by the way, where the parents will say, uh, yeah, they're not following that at all. Or no, you told her that you're getting eight hours of sleep. I came I got up to go pee at 3 a.m. and you were still up and then you got up at 10. So I don't know where, you know, all the sleep is coming from. You know, I don't know. Things like that where they will like share the truth and then my patient will come clean about it and be like, well, I just didn't want her to be disappointed. And then we'll have a conversation about that. About It's not about disappointing me. It's about you letting me know where you're at so we can help you and meet you where you're at, you know? So all patients, I feel like, lie to their therapists a little bit or at least omit certain things because, again, like the person said, because they're either too sick to see reality or don't want to face certain things. There's always a reason, right? Shame, guilt, embarrassment, huge motivators. Fear, another huge motivator, like fear of judgment from me, right? Um, which, you know, therapy is not the place for judgment. And so that's that's what I would do is with with this exact scenario, considering that my, pa my patient would be the adult, I would... Uh, you know, receive the voicemail and I would tell my patient what it was, maybe even let them listen to it and tell them to talk to their mom and let them know that I'm not the go between. If they have anything to say, they can come into session, you know, and then if my patient wants it, we'll make it happen. But we would, you know, we would talk about it and it would be something that I would address with them because if there's any truth to that, because my, my response after letting them listen to it and, you know, figuring out what, what they want to do is I would say, you know, and is there any truth to what they're saying? Because we have been working on anxiety, but maybe there's other things going on. I don't want you to, you know, don't feel like you can't talk to me about it. And if they said there wasn't anything going on, I have to believe them. You know, it's not, it's not my part. It's not my role as a therapist to not think you're telling me the truth and not believe you when you say things to me. My role is to hear you out, listen, 
and help you work towards your goals. It has nothing to do with me getting all the information and and knowing that it's correct and right. That that comes with judgment and that comes, you know, with uh me needing like me needing evidence and that that's just not very therapeutic is what I'm really getting at. So anyways, I hope that makes sense. I hope that's clear. That's what I would do. Cuz therapists should not be the go between. It's it's actually unethical and it's something that we I forget. We learned in law and ethics when I was in school about like especially when you see couples and, and families, one member will try to call in and be like, she's lying about blah, 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 or whatever. And then you just bring that exact thing up in session so that they know they can't do that. That that's not that would be cause a triangulation, which is like an unhealthy uh, relationship dynamic where the two people who actually are having the conflict, like the base of the triangle, uh, aren't going straight to each other. They're going instead through this other person. So it's like a triangle without a base, you know, like I guess an arrow, if you will. They're using this other person instead, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't lead anywhere positive. Okay, moving on to question number six. It says, hey, Katie, can you parentify yourself as a child? It's great, great questions this week. I seem to have learned from a very early age that I need to be strong and sort of hold things together. But I don't think that my parents ever intended to make me feel that way. My therapist talks about attachment trauma. I don't know the proper English term and emotional neglect. That works. I think that's the proper English term. Though I see a lot of damage in me, I find it hard to blame anyone but me. Of course, the shame of of neglect. Um, They didn't mean any harm. Uh, Okay, so, and then someone, a comment said, Katie, do you have any ideas how to overcome this? What kind of therapy would work or be okay? Um, okay, so let's get into this. Can you parentify yourself as a child? Technically speaking, this was a really interesting question because it took me a minute to like put my thoughts together. Technically speaking, we do parentify ourselves because no one else is filling that role. So it's almost like there's no other option because when we're a parentified child, we're either emotionally or like in action, fulfilling the role of a parent or both, meaning we're the ones to get up and make breakfast for the other, you know, if we have any siblings or get ourselves ready at a very early age, check our own homework. You know, a lot of parentified children will forge their parent's signature on release forms and things saying they did their homework, not out of any malicious intent, more just because their parent's not there and they don't, they like, they told them to and they left it out and they forgot. And they're like, you know, the child is left to to be the only grown up. And so in a way we we do do that stuff but it's only because there's no one else doing it and those needs still have to be met. <clears throat> and print, being a parentified child does mean that there is some either emotional neglect, if not, you know, financial neglect, physical neglect. There's all sorts of neglect going on. It, it's abusive, but it's our resilience and our ability to rise above and, and get our needs met anyway that causes us to parentify ourselves. So yes, we do it, but it's because our parents aren't doing it. It's their lack of that forces us to make up that difference, to go over and above what we should be doing, right? It's not appropriate for a child to be completely taking care of themselves from such a young age and have no emotional or physical support from a parent. Um, and that's not appropriate developmentally, but we do it because we want to survive. And so we're resilient. And so definitely that's why your therapist is talking about emotional neglect and attachment trauma, because no one was there for you. You were there for yourselves. Uh Parents don't have to intend for us to be hurt. 
in order for us to be hurt. I mean, how many of us by a show of hands, I'm raising my hand right now, have hurt someone's feelings without meaning to? All the time, right? Miscommunication, misunderstandings, not thinking something was as big of a deal as it was to them. There's a million ways we can tell you that story, but we've all done it where we've hurt someone without realizing it. So parents may not intend to be shitty at their job as a parent, but a lot of them are. They may be doing, quote unquote, their best, but we all know their best is not, it's not stacking up. It's not good enough. And it sounds like that's the case with your parents, that they, they didn't mean to, but they were shitty and they weren't around. And so then you had to be strong and hold things together because no one else was doing it. You had no other person you could lean on. So what do we control when nothing else, when everything else feels out of control? We control ourselves and we do it ourselves, which makes you strong and amazing and you can do all this shit, but it also can be exhausting, lead to attachment issues and us feeling like we can never count on anyone else, which can be a very isolating life. And there's a lot of different ramifications depending on how we, how we personally dealt with it. Okay, then the comment, how do we overcome this? So the kind of therapy that's actually best, there is attachment-based therapy, by the way. If you can find an attachment specialist, they do a lot of DBT and a lot of essentially like boundary talk and trauma, some trauma-informed work when it comes to you know childhood stuff like that and not feeling that neglect that we're talking about, like not feeling connected, not feeling taken care of, that any kind of therapy in that realm. I... I even think CBT could be helpful. There's also trauma-focused, TF-CBT, trauma-focused CBT that could be beneficial. Um, so CBT, DBT, and any kind of trauma uh, therapy, like schema, somatic experience, I think all of those could be very, very, very beneficial. I would stay away from just basic talk therapy where there's no homework, there's no instruction, there's no... Uh, I guess, structure to it. I don't believe that just talking about this is going to make it better. I think this we're going to have to dig in and, and force ourselves to do things differently. Even exposure therapy could be kind of beneficial in some ways for this. So I hope that that helps. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. It says, hi, Katie. Could you talk about self-sabotage in relation to recovering from a mental illness? I recently started antidepressants for the first time and thought I was starting to feel more clear-headed and able to and more able to get out of bed. However, quickly everything spiraled when one evening I struggled with this a series of really awful intrusive thoughts and immediately turned into or turned to unhealthy coping skills or coping mechanisms like alcohol, overeating, negative thought spirals. My depression symptoms came back even more strongly, and I feel like I'm purposefully sabotaging my recovery. It's like I'm torn between my actual self-seeking recovery and a self-destructive voice that blocks out any hope and any rational thoughts. Thanks for all that you do. Now, there's a couple comments that I'm going to get into after this, but a lot of times self-sabotage could be could happen for a lot of reasons. The first is we can feel like we're not worth it, right? Um, it can be so scary to put all that effort in when we, we don't even have like a good sense of self, right? Our confidence can be shot. We can feel like we're just a piece of human garbage and we talk shit to ourselves all day. And so the thought of putting effort and energy and, you know, paying someone for their time to help us, right? I've even had patients over the years tell me like, they felt like therapy was super self-indulgent, like that they weren't really worth it. And it was a lot of money to put out. And, you know, I just feel like it's like, uh, like me going to a spa, they would put it in the same, like court, like on the same level as like paying for a spa day. And a lot of our work was trying to figure out and redefine, figure out where that belief in 
you know, de uh, definition came from and then spending time redefining it and, and figuring out what it meant for them and, and why almost getting into the why about like why that belief system exists. Why do you think it's so self-indulgent? Who, who's told you, what have we heard? You know, a lot of times there's some of that in there too. And so, so there's that component, but the, a lot of what I find to be the most common is the uh, discomfort with a different way of life. Meaning that I know what it's like to feel like shit. I know it well. I've been living in it for years. I, I know what to expect. I know what I can and cannot do. I know about my energy levels. I know how my relationship's going to be. They're going to be like shit, but it's okay because I'm, I'm used to this shit. So the idea of walking out of that shitty dumpster fire of a life that we're feeling like we're in and, and tiptoeing slowly over into a happier feeling us, you know, we're moving from one side to the next is really scary. And because we're so comfortable, because comfortable doesn't always mean good. Comfortable just means we're used to it. We're so used to feeling like shit that the idea of not feels really uncomfortable. We're like, I don't know what to expect. I don't know how to prepare for this. I don't know what to do in my relationships or how to talk to myself when things are going well. That seems really scary and really unknown. And the fear of that unknown can hold us in the terrible yet super comfortable way of living. And so when we start to feel better, we can be like, either A, I'm not worth it or whatever, like the first version that I was talking about, or B, um, this is really weird. And I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop and the anxiety of being in this space makes me feel worse. So I'm going to go back to what I know. We can do that. And so that's why it's very, very common. And that's why we tend to self-sabotage. And so what I would encourage all of you out there to do if you are struggling with these like self-destructive thoughts or behaviors is to to consider which of those it is for you, or is it something else? Like, I can't know everything. Did I leave something out? Is there another reason that you find yourself, you know, self-sabotaging? But I, I think a lot of it has to do with that. And so then there was a comment on the end of this who said, I have something similar, almost quote unquote, don't want to get better, probably has something to do with feeling validated in the way that you were and know when you're not okay. And then another person said, I have depression and PTSD and I want to get better, but sometimes I don't feel worth it. How do I overcome feelings of not being worth recovery? So that first question about the don't want to get better a lot of times we can feel like if we don't, if we do get better, then we won't have access to certain things like, oh, people won't care about me. They will leave. It could be fear of abandonment driven. If I feel better, then I don't get to see my therapist or she's going to discharge me or I'm not going to, my mom's not going to come over every week or whatever, you know, this extra attention that we might feel like we're getting from our mental illness. Again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Needing attention is not a bad thing. It's a human thing. We all need attention. Some of us just go about it in a way that's not very healthy for us or our relationships. And so identifying that and recognizing that is important. And so if that's part of it, you know, that might be why we don't want to. We might want that extra validation, extra support, extra uh, compassion from people, or it might validate us going to therapy. Like I was talking about, if we feel like it's a very self-indulgent thing and we're not really worth it. Well, I am, then we can argue back with facts, right? Well, I am super, super sick. So if we start to get better, we're like, well, I'm not really that sick. There's other ways to argue that everyone is deserving of attention, support, and we can all benefit from therapy. We don't have to be feeling totally shitty to get it. And, and in fact, if we go in sooner, then us feeling shitty, we don't have to stay in it as long and it can be easier to work through things. So the sooner the better. 
And okay, so that's that part. And then the final is like how to overcome those feelings of not being worth recovery. It's back to that self-talk. It's about to, it's back to recognizing what we're talking to ourselves about it and and coming up with some more balanced thoughts about it. Like, you know, if the thought is I'm not worth recovery, a more balanced thought would be I'm open to the idea that I'm not as shitty as I think. I'm open to that idea. I'm open to exploring the belief or the thought that I could be important to someone. I'm open to exploring that, right? We're not making definitive answers. We're living in the maybes, the possibilities, the I I could if I tried possibly sometime, you know, we're going to live in that land a little bit so that we can, and then, you know, challenge those negative thoughts. Don't allow them any space in your head. Even if it's just, you know, that I've told you you're worth recovery. It's like, we have to not entertain those thoughts because those thoughts will spend all day in our head and breed other thoughts and we'll have feelings about it and it gets into the cycle and then we feel like shit even worse, right? And so, um, and even the the feelings of not being worth recovery, some of that could be confidence-based. And I have that uh, video that came out uh, probably, I think it was in December about like building your self-confidence up. And I talk about building mastery and how important that is. Obviously, I talk about the self-talk stuff. I... Um, talk about doing good for other people because a lot of times we get just as much back when we do things for others that is kind and putting good out there. Anyway, you can check that video out if you want a little bit of that. Oh, which rolls right into question number eight, which is right in the vein of self-confidence. Says, Katie, what can I do to build up more self-confidence? I suffer from depression and had quit my job a few months ago because of that. I went to university and got into financial problems as a result. I feel better at the moment and I start an internship next month. I'm really looking forward to it, but I'm afraid of being overwhelmed by working again. I have very low self-esteem and often feel weak and worthless. I worry that I might make a bad impression at the internship because of my insecurities. What can I do? Thanks for all you do. Please watch my video about confidence. Um, I'll even pull it up here to make sure that I uh, link it because I think this will really be helpful for a lot of us. I want you all to know also that like it's not... We all struggle with our self-confidence at one point or another. It's not something that we automatically always have. For some people, it's easier to come by, but for a lot of us, we have to work at it. And I, I believe throughout our life, we'll have to work at this at different times. Now, the the first tip for building self-confidence, and I'm just going from my video, is what I talked about with the figuring out what we're good at, the building mastery. Because when we, you know, if you cultivate a strength, right, we're going to work really hard to get better at something. And when we feel good about how we're able to do that thing, then we feel good about ourselves and our abilities and it just builds. And in DBT, they talk about this a lot, uh, how important it is to build mastery because building mastery and or having things that we can do well just helps us not um, not be as reactive, right? We're more soothed because we feel more fulfilled and more confident. And so anyways, find something like, are you really great at dealing with difficult people? Are you super patient? Are you a great organizer? Are you really good at making that one uh, one meal? Uh, are you a good listener? Are you really good at getting stains out of clothes? I don't know. Are you really good at finding new music? Are you really good at pick, uh, figuring out some tricks and tips for video games and best, best ways to navigate that? What are you good at? Everybody's good at something. I know a lot of times we take things for granted. We're like, oh, everybody's good at that. You know, blah, blah. It's not a big deal that I am. No enough of that. A lot of people aren't good at a lot of things. I am not good at a lot of things, but you probably are. And so 
Pay attention to the things that you're good at or kind of good at and work to get better so that you feel good about it because that builds more confidence. And then is the negative self-talk. Pay attention to that. We have to get out of that thought cycle. We're going to have to pay attention to the most common negative thoughts we have and, you know, three to five of them and find some more balanced responses. Check your facts on them and let's come back to that. And then uh, the third tip that I offer in the video and the one I'll talk about, I've already kind of talked about is putting positive out into the world. You know, like uh, it could be anything from opening a door for a stranger. I know we're wearing masks, so smiles don't, you know, come as quickly and we don't see them, but you could say good morning to people. You could uh, pay for the person behind you in a drive-through. You could uh, donate some time at a soup kitchen or something, or you could donate your time online. Something that makes me feel really good, especially this year has been donating my time to answer questions for people at other groups or at universities or things like that. Those are ways we put good things out there. Um, also something that I've done over the years, and I've talked about this periodically, is when I think something nasty about someone else, I know I'm not perfect. You can judge me all you want. But when I find myself doing that, I force myself to give them two compliments in my head. Because all that negative talk about other people is really just a representation of how I feel. And trust me when I tell you that if you find yourself shit talking other people in your head and you come up with two compliments on top of that to like undo the shitty thought, you will feel better. So it's really, really great. Um, and then the other tip that I talk about in the video is like accepting our limitations and being courageous about it. So it's like being okay with saying, I don't know, uh, teach me about that. Or wow, I had no idea. Why don't you tell me more? Like not feeling the pressure to have all the things to say up front, especially you're talking about internship and this question, not feeling like you have to know everything or be super on top of it. You can just ask a lot of questions, let people teach you. That's what an internship is about. It's okay to tell people, oh, I don't know about that. I'd love to learn, tell me more. We can be excited and interested and not, and still not have the right answers. That doesn't having, knowing everything and having the right answers does not mean that we are confident or necessarily even good at it, right? It's okay to let people teach us more. And, uh, oh, and then, you know, we, it's like, I think that's it for my tips on this thing. Yeah. Is the limitations and being okay saying that, because I think that confidence is something that we're always going to have to consistently work on. It's something that we're always building on and, and trying to do better. So don't feel any pressure to like feel good all of a sudden and, and know everything. Again, we're just going to slowly build up that mastery. We're going to be nice to other people. We're going to put positive stuff out in the world. We're going to check our thoughts, check our facts about those nasty thoughts we're having and be okay with saying, I don't know about that, but I would love to learn. Tell me more because that will not only rep you know, be good representation of yourself at the workplace, but it'll also allow for other people to to teach you and they feel connected with you and it will just help us all feel better and all feel more confident. So I hope that that helps. Let's move on to question number nine. Question number nine says, hi, Katie, is it normal for a therapist to not give any tools whatsoever? I've been with my psychologist since October. She's my first, and I feel like she never handed me any tools to cope with the anxiety and depressive symptoms. In January, because of AKA, I had a big realization that I was emotionally neglected as a child. We talked about that for two sessions. Right now, I'm doing pretty okay because life is kind of stable at the moment, but I fear it's going to go downhill again. She's talking about having more 
time in between sessions and discontinuing sessions altogether. I don't know how to feel. I feel like therapy hasn't really done anything for me apart from having more anxiety before sessions. That's why I agreed with her. What do you think about all this? Are we just a bad fit or is this normal? Thanks for everything you do. The podcast has helped me figure out a lot about myself. Oh, I'm so glad. That's that's really good to hear. That makes me feel good. So, okay. I get a lot of pushback in my world, meaning colleagues, other therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, when I talk about how important it is for therapists to give tools and feedback and homework. And the pushback is, not all therapies like that, Katie. You're making people think that all therapy is supposed to be directive like that, and that's just not how it all works. To which I reply, bullshit. You don't have goals in therapy, so how do you know what you're working towards? Do you have a treatment plan you put together? Oh, you don't? So how do people know when they don't need to see you anymore, when they just start feeling better? How, how do you maximize their time in between sessions to make sure that they're able to try things out and let you know what works and doesn't work? How does that work? How does that get better? I just do not agree with that. Wholeheartedly, we'll fight back fist to fist with other mental health professionals who don't agree because I believe while not all therapy has these strict formulaic treatment plans, we should have goals, we should be challenged, and we should have new things we're trying in our life, period, in order for therapy to work and to be beneficial for us really in a real way. Now, someone in the comments said that sometimes psychologists are different than therapists. I personally haven't found that to be true because I've seen a psychologist. I've seen an LCSW. I've seen an LMFT. Like you guys know, I've been in and out of therapy since I was 15. So I've seen a variety of people over the years. Um, I think I've had six different people. So anyway, I've, I've had all three different types that, that I'm aware of in my area, like a psychologist, therapist, and social worker, all pretty much the same. But what is different is them and me and whether it's a good fit. And so part of me feels like talking about being neglected as a child for only two sessions does not seem good enough for me. And the fact that all that you feel has changed is that you have more um, you have more anxiety before session. That's not good. These indicators, I feel like these are more red flags. And so part of me would would want you to maybe try seeing someone else. Not that you have to cancel and not see this person anymore, but I would like you to maybe venture out and try to find someone different because it may just be that the style of treatment that this psychologist offers is not a fit for you. Maybe we like them, but the, the what they're doing isn't helpful. Or we, maybe we don't really feel fully heard. Like I've talked to you for years about how important it is to find a therapist that we really connect with. And I just want to, you know, double down on that here because it sounds like maybe you're done seeing her and maybe it was a good first try. It wasn't terrible. We went, we've seen her for a while. Okay. I was, I'm used to doing that thing where I show up and talk to a stranger about my life, right? Sometimes that's the hardest part. Um, so we had that experience. Let's move on to another one because in my mind, even just reading this, I'm like, you're not done with therapy. Uh, the emotional neglect you sustained as a child needs to be dealt with in a way that works for you, whether that's like processing out by talking it out or whether it's finding ways to to uh, or seeing how that's affecting you today and what we can do today so that those symptoms and patterns of behavior don't continue. Like there's so much to get into. I feel like, I mean, that I could work on that for months, depending on, you know, what your goals are and stuff like that. Because my belief or my guess would be that these anxiety and depressive symptoms are coming out of that. And I would want to potentially refer you to like Alexa to get EMDR or somatic experiencing therapy to help deal with some of that trauma from the neglect. Um, so yeah, that's what I think about all that. I think it's probably not a good fit. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing someone else. You might just say, yeah, let's just discontinue sessions. That's an easy way to end it. So if you find someone who's a better fit, I would encourage you just to end it with that one, move into the next one. And I think you'll find someone who does offer tools and resources and a greater understanding and actually spends time with you, helping you better manage what's coming up, not just like rushing through and being like, you're good, you're fixed. You know, I just, it doesn't sound like it's the right fit for you. And that's okay, right? It, you know, it was a first go. It wasn't terrible. At least it wasn't harmful for you. But now we can find you someone who can help you thrive and help you, you know, work through those things. Okay, let's move into question number 10. And that says, hey, Katie, I am someone who struggles with being direct. And, it, it, and I expect the other person to just know when they have caused unintentional hurt to me or crossed a boundary. Oh, we all have trouble with this. Trust me. When I, uh, when I didn't communicate to them, I end up getting really angry and resentment starts to build until I explode in the last moment, leading to a terrible fight. I know it's not fair to them, especially when I'm not direct about it. Um, so how would they ever know what they did wrong? Do you have any tips on how to be more honest and not be quiet just to be polite and not come across sensitive because it can lead to a lot of passive aggressive behaviors 100% and resentment in a relationship which can be so harmful in the long run? Yes, my my number one advice for this is over communicate. Now, the problem with those of us who struggle to be direct or take up space or tell people how we feel and, and feel okay doing it is that, again, all these things start to happen. I used to do this all the time, by the way. I used to not tell people how I felt, think that they should read my mind. I've even done it to Sean in the past. Thank God for therapy, right? It got me out of that pattern. But I would be like, he should know that. But my therapist used to be like, how should he know? What do you expect him to recognize? And she would like ma force me to come up with the things that he was supposed to tell to be able to like the telltale signs that I'm upset. And she'd be like, that seems uh, not very clear. You know, what if he thought maybe you were just uh, upset about work? Could he think, could he have thought that? And I'd be like, well, yeah, he could have thought that. Well, could he have thought that you just had like a bad conversation with your mom or a friend? And I'd be like, yeah. How is he to know that it's him? And I'd be like, shit, right? So that never helps. It is bad. And all of the things that we're doing as a result of it, trust me, I've, I've been there. I've done it. The, the way we have to do it is, and the way that I do it is first, don't apologize before you've told them what's up. Because I tend to, I went through that phase too. So that was phase number one of my own recovery from this was like, I'm just going to over apologize while I tell them how I feel so that they're not offended. Oh, no, 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 no. That doesn't get us anywhere either because that's already like inauthentic because I'm not really sorry. Let's be honest. I'm not really sorry. I'm just like, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. Because I don't know if I can handle that emotionally. So instead of even just saying like, hey, you know, um, next time, could you just tell me you're going? Because I would have liked to have gone with you or something direct like that, right? I would say, I'm so sorry, but but I just, you know, sorry, I just really would have liked to have gone. I, I don't mean to hurt your feeling. Like I would just assume all of these things, like I needed to apologize like a crazy amount. So let's not do that, okay? Learn from me, learn from my mistakes. Let's get into what I'm doing now, which is, recognizing when we're upset, which isn't really that hard if we think about it, but you'd be surprised. Sometimes we just don't even pay attention. So lately, I've been noticing the things that are kind of festering, the things that I'm thinking about a lot or that bothered me. And then I pick a time that's non-emotional for everybody. Like you don't want to pick like a super stressful time or not have enough time to talk about it. And I bring it up in a very direct yet compassionate manner. So let's say the issue is um, I'm... I'm uh, upset with Sean because I am always doing the housework and he's not helping out, which isn't really true, but I'm just, this is just all pretend, right? 
So instead of me just lashing out at him, which I used to do, not say anything for like weeks and weeks and be the only one cleaning and then lashing out, you never do anything. I'm always the one, right? It's a bunch of nevers, always. Uh, you, you know, it's all these just extremes and I would be mad. Instead, while it's happening, I will say something to the effect of, well, I'm, I'm swiffering the floor. And this is like a real thing because I just swiffered before, before I did this podcast. I'm going to swiffer the floor. You know, this, this weekend, could I count on you to clean the bathroom? To which he always says, oh yeah, of course. And I'll say, okay, because I'd like all the, the housekeeping to be done by Monday. Is that okay? And then he'll say yes or no. You know, I have a busy weekend. Can we do it on Monday or Sunday or another day? You know, and it'd be negotiated, right? We have to have compromise, but we have to communicate. Or if someone has hurt our feelings, this is where a lot of people run in when it's not a thing that is done, not a behavior. It's like a relationship misstep. And when it comes to those types of situations, I will tell people, like, I'll just use Sean as an example again, because, you know, I see him every day, all day because of COVID and we're married and I love him very much. But so we, let's say he said something that hurt my feelings. First, we, we can't let our brain jump to this assumption that they meant to right? We, we do that. We could think, oh, they knew that was going to be hurtful and they did it anyways. Uh, we don't really have any facts for that. So let's not go down that path. Instead, let's consider how could I let them know in a way that would be clear and allows them to, because this is most likely the reaction, allows them the ability to say, oh my God, I didn't know. Okay. I didn't realize that wasn't my intention. So in the case of, of Sean and I, let's say he had said something like, made a flippant comment about my hair being frizzy. He has not, but I'm just making this up. And it really hurt my feelings. Later, I could say to him, um, but you can't let it go too long. That's the trick. This has to be pretty quick in action so that they can recall the time because we can't ima- we can't expect people to remember what happened a month ago, right? That's not fair because it probably wasn't an issue to them. And so our brain's not going to really log it away. So within a couple of days, hopefully within the day, for me, it'd probably be like 24 hours. It's, it's like the turnaround I strive for. So within 24 hours, I figure out what, what it was that hurt my feelings. And then I come to him and I say, I just want to let you know that yesterday or earlier today, when you said that my hair looked kind of frizzy, that actually hurt my feelings because I'd worked really hard on it. To I'm, tr- I'm trying to not make it be as frizzy. Also not true, guys. I give no fucks. But I could say, you know, that hurt my feelings. And, and I just want to tell you because otherwise I was just going to sit on it. And that's it. And I know we're thinking, oh my God, he could be so mad. He could yell. He could be so upset. I'm telling you, in my experience, I've been working on this for like, oh God, like 10 years, you guys, in therapy to try to get myself to be better at communicating more quickly so I'm not passive aggressive. And I can tell you I've made a shit ton of progress. But in all those years of me saying stuff or speaking up, I have a most difficult time with strangers, but never have I ever had anyone blow up. The, the worst response I've ever received is from someone that I know that was like, they got defensive, to which I tried to learn how I could communicate that better in a way that was like, I'm sure you didn't mean anything. We can even put things up front. Like, I'm sure you didn't mean anything. But when you said that, it really hurt my feelings. And, and I just wanted to let you know, you know, please don't say stuff like that again. It hurt my feelings. You know, some people are super defensive. They can be like, well, I didn't mean to and blah, blah, blah. And you can be like, I know, I know you didn't mean to. I just wanted to let you know so that I'm not holding this resentment. That's fair. I know, I know I'm talking about this a lot, but it's because it's something that I personally have dealt with forever. And it's something I still struggle with. And I find strangers to be the most difficult, but I'll be truthful with you. I was just talking about this. I have an interview that I did that hasn't gone live yet or anything, but where we talk about communicating, like, especially in work, like, oh, I don't like that 
you know, that art that you created for me, it's not what I wanted, but how do we say that in a way that is kind and compassionate and allows for them to give you what you want, right? Because I work with people all the time on different ways. Like I had my friend Yelena create different art for for uh, my merch for my main channel. She did a beautiful job. But there were some things that I was like, hey, could you do this differently? I love this, but I don't like that. And when it's strangers or even friends, really, I do a hug and roll. And I find that super effective. And that's when we give a compliment. And then we offer some uh, constructive criticism. So like, if I'm talking to someone and they put together something for me, or I'm talking to someone at work and they're trying to work on a project with me, I'm like, hey, I love the way you formatted that. And that slide is beautiful. But, and then we roll them away and we say, but, you know, what I was really looking for was something along the lines of that, you know, does that make sense? Could you do that? Or do you want me to help you? Because maybe I'm just not communicating it as clearly, right? We're, we're not putting all ownership on them. We're taking our 50% of the ownership of this communication and this you know, experience we're having, and we're allowing for that kind of conversation. Now, I know that this is difficult work. And this is probably something that I could do like a whole series on and maybe I should make another video about it. I think I've done one in the past. But anyways, I hope that that helps. That's how I manage it. I the hug and roll is very effective, overly over communicating wants, needs, upsets, uh, things that assumptions that you made, uh, things that you are, you could even say like, I'm just wondering, making sure I understood, right? If something isn't really clear and we're we're kind of pissed because it was a hurtful thing, we can be like, maybe I misunderstood, but but were you saying this? And you know, we can make sure that we're clear on it before we even maybe get upset because sometimes we're upset when there's just we just don't understand. Anyway, I'm getting into the weeds. Please let me know if you would like a follow up about this, but I think there is definitely a video. Uh, in like on this topic, because it's something that we all struggle with. It's hard. But one thing at a time, like I said, in all of my years of working on this, no one has blown up at me. Okay, so, you know, it's kind of that exposure therapy thing, we have to prove to our worry brain, that like the anxious part of our brain that that didn't happen. And we're okay. Final question. Question number 11 says, Hi, Katie, what to do when everything around you is triggering? For example, music, movies, even workbooks that talk about the things I need to work on, how to move forward since I can't even work on myself without being triggered. Maybe I'm too obsessive because of my BPD. This was a great question. I actually saw a meme today on Instagram that really pissed me off that said being triggered is not a choice. Now, if you're scrolling quickly, you're like, well, yeah, of course, I don't choose to be triggered. And it just bothered me. Because in so many ways online, people tend to want to put the onus on the person who triggered the other person. And going back to the question that we just talked about, if you haven't communicated with people what's upsetting and not, then they can't read our minds and they are, no, they are not responsible. We are responsible for building up our resilience so that we're not triggered as often. And I know that may come across as like not a very loving thought or response, but but hear me out as we get through this, okay? Because I don't mean it that way. I just mean that other people are not responsible for our happiness. We're responsible for our own happiness. And if we don't allow them the time to understand and navigate our struggles better so that we're not so affected, you know, we're then we can't expect that. Does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. But let's move into the question itself. It says, what to do when everything around you is triggering. The best way that we can manage this is truly building up our coping skills or what I would call like resources or uh, nervous system soothers, whatever you want to call them. There are things that we can do to help us feel better and help us feel less triggered, less hypervigilant, less whatever, right? And those can be things like, but there's two types, first of all. 
There are things that are processing based and things that are distraction based. And there might even be like a third that I'd throw in there that are like actions we take, but I'd even almost just call those distractions. So the processing ones are things like journaling, talking to a therapist, working in a workbook, uh, doing impulse logs. There can be a lot of different things that we can do to help us process through what we're feeling. Are we writing down some feelings, maybe uh, trying to identify some feelings. Those are all process-based. And those can help us kind of better understand why we're triggered. Then there are the distraction ones. And the distraction ones are things like coloring, calling a friend. And calling a friend can maybe be processing too, but a lot of times it can be distraction. We don't have to talk about serious things. Going for a walk, petting an animal, uh, cleaning my laundry and folding it. Repetitive tasks can be very soothing to our nervous system, FYI take, you know, putting the dishes away, another repetitive task. Very good. Um, maybe it's uh, doing that full body shake I've been talking about to regulate your nervous system. That could be something that we do, having silly putting in our hands, uh, painting our nails. Uh, you get the just playing video games, watching a TV show we like or a movie, all those things, distractions. I have a whole video. If you just look up 25 coping skills or Katie Morton, 25 coping skills on YouTube, you will find it. That's how we better cope because what we have to do so that we're not so easily triggered all the time is build up that resilience. And our resilience is really our ability to withstand life's ups and downs, things that are going to come into our life, the smells, the things we see, all the things that can be triggering to us. We have to be able to rise above it. We have to be able to have things to calm ourselves so we don't get dysregulated so quickly. And it takes practice and it takes time to build. And while we're doing that work, honestly, that's the work in between our sessions. The work in sessions should be to heal from that trauma. And that could be anything, or you I don't know if it's um, triggering because of your BPD, but it sounds like music, movies, workbooks. I think it's I think it's more trauma-based, but maybe it's not. But either way, when we do the work in therapy to heal the root of this issue, whether it's trauma or if it's something to do with your BPD, just feeling really reactive, then we're going to need to learn some new skills, right? Some mindfulness, and we're going to have to process through the reason what things are triggering and why we think they're triggering and and come to heal those and better understand those. Um, yeah, we'll have to do the work in therapy while doing all of those things to help build up our resilience for our everyday life. And the thing that it kind of sucks, but it's just the truth is that we can start to feel better and think, oh, I don't need to do all these things anymore. I'm all good. I don't need to do all these coping skills wrong. Unfortunately, resilience is something that we continually have to build and it sucks. And I know that seems like an exhaustive amount of work, but we need to get, like what I can tell you personally is we get to the point where it's just part of our everyday stuff. So me, uh, for my resilience, I know that I need to uh, eat every three to four hours or I lose my shit. I need to drink a lot of water. I need to talk to my friends and family and get that connection because that helps me feel more grounded and better. I need to journal about things that I can't quite make sense of yet because it helps me to put it to paper. I'm old school. I journal old school wise, um, but it helps me see it more clearly. And I need to exercise a couple of days a week. Otherwise, I feel kind of lost and like frazzled and just not myself. And yoga is a huge component of that. And so those are some things that I do. And those are things that are part of my daily routine to help me feel my best. Um, And yes, your basic needs are part of building that resilience, taking your medication on time, drinking water, eating, all of that is building your resilience. And so the more effort we put into doing that, the better we will feel and the better able we will be able to navigate things that used to be triggering and then they're not anymore. And we can be like, yes, we can celebrate. Um, But it does get better. Okay. Trust me, it does get better. So stick with it. 
Thank you all so much for listening. I these your questions are always so amazing. They're they're just it, they're just such they're all over the place in terms of issues and struggles, which makes each of these podcast episodes hopefully helpful to you no matter where you are in your own path to uh, you know, emotional understanding or emotional intelligence or recovery or whatever it is. I hope that this kind of helped each episode kind of gives you something, at least maybe a little seed is planted to help you better understand yourself because that's what's been so beneficial to me in my own life is just like, as I've done my own work in therapy and even being a therapist and doing research, I'm like, oh, I, I've struggled with that too. Like it just helps for me to make sense of it, to understand a little bit more. And then once that seed is planted later, it can bloom into other patterns of behavior that I'm like, hey, I think that might be connected to that. And I don't like that. So let's work on it. And it just has led me down a path of my own self-discovery, my own work. And hopefully it's able to do the same thing for you. Thank you to everyone who sent in your questions. You, you're so amazing. All the comments back, sharing other thoughts and insights. I love our community. You guys are the best. Um, if you're wondering if you're new, welcome. If you're wondering where to ask your question, I ask for them on the Opinions That Don't Matter YouTube channel in the community tab and I post them on Mondays at 6 a.m. I've been scheduling them because I was forgetting them for a while. So I will make sure those are scheduled and will go out and you can ask your question. And I've heard from a lot of you that getting your question in early means that it will have more of an opportunity to get enough thumbs up to be in the podcast. So there you have it. Now you know when you can pop in and do it in a specific standard time as always. I love you. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you next time. Bye. Questions you've always wanted to know.